Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guideline series for the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardinerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college student through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy. The following question refers to section 7.3 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Palisades Medical Center medicine resident and cardiac intern, Dr. Mariam Barkhadarian, answered first by MedStar Washington Hospital Center cardiology hospitalist and cardiac academy graduate, Dr. Luis Calderon, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Greg Fonero. Dr. Fonero is the professor of medicine and interim chief of UCLA's Division of Cardiology, director of the Amundsen UCLA Cardiomyopathy Center, and co-director of UCLA's preventive cardiology program. Dr. Fonero, it is such a pleasure to have you with us here today on CardioNerds. Welcome. Great to join you. Louis, I have a question for you. Ms. Flauzen is a 60-year-old woman seen in cardiology clinic for follow-up of her chronic hepherep management. She has a history of a stable coronary artery disease, hypertension, hypothyroidism, and recurrent urinary tract infection. She does not have a history of diabetes, and a recent hemoglobin A1c is 5%. Her current medication include carbidolol, sacubitril, balsartan, epiron, and atorvastatin. Her friend was recently placed on an SGLT2 inhibitor and asked if she should be considered for one as well. Which of the following is the most important consideration when deciding to start this patient on an SGLT2 inhibitor? A. The patient does not have a history of type 2 diabetes and so does not qualify for SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. B. While SGLT2 inhibitors improve hospitalization rates for HEFREF, there is no evidence that they improve cardiovascular mortality. C. Patients taking SGLT2 inhibitor tend to suffer a more rapid decline in renal function than patients not taking SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. D. Patients may be at a higher risk for genitourinary infection if an SGLT2 inhibitor is started. So, Louis, what do you think? That's a good question. In this case, the correct answer is D. SGLT2 inhibitors have been associated with an increased risk of genitourinary infections. The sodium glucose co-transporter protein 2, or SGLT2 inhibitor, has gained a lot of press lately as the new kid on the block with respect to heart failure management. While they were initially developed as an anti-hyperglycemic medication for treating diabetes, 
Early cardiovascular outcome trials showed reduced rates of heart failure hospitalization amongst study participants, independent of glucose lowering effects and irrespective of baseline heart failure status. In fact, only about 10 to 14% of patients carried a heart failure diagnosis at baseline. The Emperor-Reduced and DAPA-HF trials showed that empagliflozin and dapagliflozin, respectively, both confer statistically significant improvements in the composite of heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular death. This is option B. More interestingly, these effects were seen irrespective of diabetes history. In light of these findings, the 2022 HF guidelines recommend that SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with chronic symptomatic HFRF with or without diabetes to reduce hospitalizations for HF and cardiovascular mortality. This is a class one level of evidence A. The benefits of HDL2 inhibitors extend beyond cardiovascular health. Analyses of the DAPA-HF and the AMPA-reduced trials showed that patients receiving HDL2 inhibitor therapy had fewer serious renal outcomes and slower rates of decline in EGFR than patients in the control groups. As with all medications, HDL2 inhibitors must be used with an awareness of some potentially serious side effects. SLT2 inhibitors have been associated with higher rates of genital urinary infections, potentially related to the increased glycosuria associated with sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibition. Trials have shown between two and four-fold increased risk of vulvovaginal candidiasis for patients on SGLT2 inhibitors compared to placebo. These medications have also been associated with bacterial urinary tract infections, fornase gangrene, and euglycemic ketoacidosis. So overall, the main takeaway from all of this is SGLT2 inhibitors are now a class one recommendation for patients with chronic symptomatic HFREF, regardless of whether or not they have diabetes. Although SGLT2 inhibitors have increased risk for genital infections, they're actually otherwise well tolerated in the trials. Dr. Fonaroy, considering these medications, is there anything else that we should make note in terms of the rates of UTI or adverse effects within SGLT2 therapy? And how would you counsel your patients on these risks? You've nicely summarized the clinical trial evidence that really underlies these strong guideline recommendations for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, that there were remarkable additive benefits to background medical therapy with reduction of cardiovascular death in heart failure hospitalization or urgent unplanned heart failure visits. We saw this consistently in two major trials. Fortunately, the overall tolerability rate compared to placebo were comparable. And although there was an increased risk of urinary tract infections, mainly fungal infections seen overall, among those patients without type 2 diabetes, there really was a low rate and not different from placebo. So it's important when discussing the medication with patients is that the benefits outweigh the potential risks. It's important to discuss with them potential adverse events that can occur and ways of potentially reducing that risk. And in the case of genital urinary infections, that can involve genital hygiene, just looking out for that potential risk. But what's so remarkable is the benefits being entirely independent of patients having or not having type 2 diabetes, that these drugs were overall well-tolerated and had remarkable benefits so early on in reducing heart failure events, but also had meaningful improvements in health statuses measured by Kansas City Cardiomopathy Questionnaire or New York Heart Association Functional Class. So it's one of the rare medications where titration is not required, 
set it and somewhat forget it from the standpoint of dose titration and expect to see very early clinical benefits. Thank you, Dr. Fonerot. Speaking of titrating medications, how do you feel about adjusting diuretics when you initiate these medications? Yeah, it's a great question. In the clinical trials, there were not empiric adjustments made either to the diabetes medications and hypoglycemia risk was very low in the trials or in loop diuretics and hypovolemia or syncope was also very low. So there isn't a need necessarily for empiric adjustment, except that patient is already having lower volume status to where you'd make an adjustment in loop diuretics or preemptively. But it is very important to monitor patients and some patients may be able to have their loop diuretic dose adjusted or may require adjustments in their glycemic regimen. So overall well-tolerated empiric adjustments not required unless they would otherwise be made but it is important to subsequently monitor patients. Along those lines, we can expect some modest rise in creatinine or drop, drop in GFR. This is not acute kidney injury or applying a deleterious renal effect. What we now know is SGLT2 inhibitors are in fact renally protective and decrease the risk of progression on to worsen renal function or dialysis and are in fact indicated for chronic kidney disease with or without diabetes. So benefits beyond the heart extending to the kidneys and really remarkable benefits irrespective of diabetes steps. Again, thank you. And lastly, what do you think about the use of these medications within heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? So trial data has emerged. So we have the Emperor Preserved trial that was available in the guideline rating group. And thus there is a class 2A recommendation in those with heart failure with mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction. The major benefit was on heart failure hospitalizations, but the overall composite cardiovascular death at heart failure hospitalizations was reduced. Again, independent of whether patients had or did not have type 2 diabetes. This is the first medication class that met clearly its primary endpoint in a trial for patients with heart failure with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction. So that really gives it an important standing. It really tells us, you know, regardless of ejection fraction, treatment with an SGLT2 inhibitor in the absence of contraindication is in fact a uh, strong consideration in the case of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in the standard of care. So we really have our first medication that really compelling data for benefit across ejection fraction. 